Hello, this is Shirley Comer, and this week our topic is the cardiovascular system. Whenever you're doing a focused assessment, you need to be concerned with the pertinent history uh, that accompanies that system. So in the cardiovascular system, topics of interest to ask when you are performing your review of systems for the cardiovascular system in the history would be to ask about any chest pain, dyspnea, orthopnea, cough, fatigue, cyanosis or pallor, edema, nocturia, diet, obesity, alcohol use, any known cardiovascular disease, any family history of cardiovascular disease, a smoking history, any diabetes, or any floor or, or, or any um, uh, their exercise history. You also want to ask if they've had a history of rheumatic fever or their recent dental work. These can all impact their cardiovascular health. First thing I want to talk about in the cardiovascular system is the neck vessels. There are the carotid arteries and the jugular veins in the neck that we'll be concerned about today. When you're assessing the neck, you want to keep the head in a neutral position. In other words, a natural position. You don't want the um, neck hyper or hypoextended. You want to locate and palpate the carotid arteries, doing it one at a time. Remember that if you palpate both carotid arteries, you could be stopping the flow of blood to the head for a period of time, and that can have uh, consequences from something minor like dizziness to something major like loss of consciousness. So one at a time, please. You want to note the amplitude of the cardiac or the carotid pulse. It should be rated from zero to four plus. A three plus would be considered a normal pulse. You want to note the five P's of circulation whenever you're assessing pulses. You want to note if there's any uh, pain, any pallor, any uh, the pulsation, any paresthesis, which is the numbness and tingling, and any paralysis. Can it be moved? And these are all uh, signs of the circulation, uh, that adequate circulation is present. After you have palpated the carotid artery, noted its rate, rhythm, and its amplitude by grading it from 0 to 4 plus, you also want to auscultate the carotid artery for a sound known as a brewy. Now, a normal carotid artery has no sound. However, an abnormal carotid, carotid artery that has turbulent blood flow may have a brewy. It's a French word, so it's pronounced brewy, not brew it. Brewy. A brewy is a blowing or a swishing sound that accompanies turbulent blood flow. If you've ever listened for a brewy over a dia dialysis fistula, then you have auscultated this brewy. It also sounds very similar to the sound that you uh, elicit with a Doppler when you're checking for pulses. It's that same swooshing sound. Um, it does indicate turbulent blood flow, which is an abnormal condition. In order to auscultate for the carotid uh, brewy, you want to use the bell of the stethoscope, which is better at hearing lower pitch sounds, and you want to auscultate at three positions along the carotid artery. If you do hear a brewy, which again would be abnormal, 
you would then place your hand over the area where you hear the brewery to see if you can feel a thrill. A thrill is a palpable vibration, sometimes described as the purring that you would feel in a cat's throat, um, but it's a buzzing sensation that you would feel over a brewery. And the degree of the thrill indicates how much turbulent blood flow is involved. Again, a normal carotid does not have a brewery. You also, when you're listening in the uh, neck, you want to be aware that if someone does have a loud uh, heart murmur, uh, especially a murmur that's involving the aortic uh, valve, you may hear it radiating up into the neck. Next, you want to assess the jugular veins. You want to assess the patient um, at a, a in between a 30 to 45 degree angle. The patient should be slightly reclined, but should not be leaning completely down. Um, they should be at a 30 to 45 degree angle. If the person can't tolerate this position for long, you need to be quick. Um, otherwise, you may have to do the assessment with them in the upright position, which of course will be much, much less um, accurate than in the 30 to 45 degree angle position. You always want to be aware of their comfort. Keep an eye on their face to make sure they're not becoming too uh, short of breath. You want to turn the client's head sh slightly away from you and you want to shine a light across the neck. You should see the outline of both the internal and the external jugular veins uh, after shining a light on the neck. You want to locate them both and you want to note any distension that might be present in either of the internal or external jugular veins. Um, if there is no distension noted, which in a normal healthy adult, you probably will not see any jugular distension. If there is no distension noted, then you would look for the pulsations that are present in the jugular vein as a result of the backwash of blood coming from the right atrium. There is no valve that separates the right atrium from the superior vena cava. Consequently, when the right atrium beats, it pushes a bit of blood back out into the right superior vena cava. When the, the right jugular vein is very close to the superior vena cava, and you end up getting a little backwash of fluid up through that jugular vein, and it is visible in the 30 to 45 degree angle as a wave. Um, it looks like a pulsation, however, it is in a vein, so you won't be able to palpate it. As a matter of fact, if you put your fingers on it, you will obliterate it. You won't be able to grade it, but you should be able to see it. The person needs to sit to be laying very calm. You can't talk to the patient. Um, you need absolute stillness and silence in order to notice these pulsations on your patient. Once you've identified either the area of distension or the area of pulsation, the highest level of pulsation, you're going to measure that using a uh, two straight edge method. What you would do is you would take one of the straight edges, which should be a ruler, and place it um, perpendicular on the super, super sternal notch, which is, which is right where the clavicle joins the sternum. You would also then take another flat edge, which can be a pencil, it can be a tongue blade, it can be another ruler, it can be anything that has a straight edge on it. You would line it up 
with the highest level of either distension or pulsation that you find in the neck and then have it as horizontal as possible and as even as possible uh, intersect with the straight edge that is standing on the clavicle and notice the centimeter reading at that level and that is either your jugular venous distension which is JVD or your jugular venous pressure which is what you would measure if you were looking for the pulsations which would be abbreviated JVP. In either instance you should be less than two to three centimeters uh, in each of those measurements. This slide shows the anatomy of the external and the internal jugular veins. You see the external jugulars uh, drain from around the ear down over the side of the neck and tuck behind the super uh, the sternocleidomastoid muscle. You should be able to see the either distension or pulsation in that area. The internal jugulars are located more in the throat area and are much shorter. However, you should be able to see pulsations in both. You do want to measure, though, the externals, if at all possible, as they are the most accurate of the, of the jugular veins for measuring. After you have assessed the neck, you want to move to the procordium, which is the term that's given for the area of the body that is over the heart. The, you want to follow the four tools that we learned for assessment, which is inspection, palpation, percussion, and auscultation. So we start with inspection. You want to inspect the procordium. Notice any heaving or any lifts uh, in areas in the procordium that would be abnormal. The only pulsation you should be able, well you might see in the procordium, would be from the area of the PMI, which is the point of maximum impulse. It's actually the tip of the left ventricle as the ventricle uh, contracts. It flips up a bit and hits the uh, underside of the chest wall and causes a little bit of a pulsation to be visible in the chest wall. PMIs are not visible in everyone. Matter of fact, in a normal-sized adult, you probably will not see a PMI. You, you will see PMIs in children because their chest wall is thinner, and in very thin adults, you may also see a PMI. If you do see one, you want to note its location, and you also want to grade it from 0 to 4 plus like you would any other pulse. You would note its rate, rhythm, and its uh, intensity by grading from 0 to 4, and you would document that as you would any other pulse. If uh, Hopefully you won't see any other types of heaving uh, or um, uh, wall extension. If you do, that's usually an indication of hypertrophy of some portion of the heart. It should be noted as far as location. You should also listen for those areas, over those areas, for any brewies and feel for any thrills as we progress into the uh, assessment. You want to note the apical pulse. Uh, you should be able to, again, feel the apical pulse even if you can't see the BMI. You again want to note its amplitude from 0 to 4 plus. You want to note the rate and the rhythm. You also note, want to note if you have an irregular heart rhythm, 
Uh, you want to note whether it is a regular irregularity or an irregular irregularity. Um, for example, does every third beat seem to come early, in which case then it's a regular irregularity. If it is a irregular irregularity, there is no rhyme or reason. If there is an irregular heartbeat, uh, as you're assessing the apical pulse, you do want to compare that to one of the peripheral pulses, usually the radial pulse. The reason being is that even if the heart is not pumping blood uh, during uh, a PVC or a premature ventricular contraction, which could be one of the causes for an irregular heartbeat, um, you will feel a pulsation at the heart. So even if a person is having a PVC, you will hear or feel that beat uh, when you're listening or feeling for an apical pulse. However, because that, that, that beat did not pump any blood, you won't feel that at the peripheral pulse level. So it is possible for someone to have uh, an apical pulse of 80 and a peripheral pulse of 60 indicating that 20 beats per minute are not perfusing. That would be a good indication that the person is experiencing premature ventricular contractions or PVCs, um, and it would indicate a severe uh, situation in where the CVP, I'm sorry, the cardiac output uh, is being compromised by uh, PVCs which are not pumping blood. If you only assessed the apical pulse, you wouldn't realize that there, that there was any deficit in the uh, peripheral perfusion. You also want to uh, palpate the precordium to use the palm of your hand and just feel over the precordium, basically over the chest wall where the heart is, uh, where heart is situated. You want to note any uh, any thrill you might feel or any mass. You want to note any tenderness, bruising, uh, any painful areas, any areas of softness or unexpected uh, popping sensations, which can be uh, subcutaneous emphysema. As you, uh, you move on to auscultation of the heart, you want to keep in mind that there are five traditional areas um, that that you listen um, for heart sounds. These five areas uh, are illustrated on this slide and they give you the um, mnemonic device all people enjoy Time Magazine in order for you to try to remember the locations. For your examination, for the written midterm examination and also for your examination uh, at, at your uh, checkout, um, your comprehensive exam that you're going to be performing in front of me at the end of the trimester, I will expect you to know these five areas and to know all the landmarks for these areas. So the first of them is the aortic. The, these, these areas correspond to the best places to listen for these valves. So the aortic valve, the best place to listen, is actually on the right side of the chest at the second intercostal space at the sternal border. The reason that's the best place to listen for the aortic valve is not that the aortic valve is on the right side of the chest, but because in reality the aortic valve is on the posterior side of the heart and the right side ends up being the best place to hear that posterior referred sound. 
The next place is directly across the sternum at the second intercostal space on the left side of the sternum, and that is the best place to hear the pulmonic valve. Herb's point is an anatomical point that is the, the, the place where the S1 and S2 sounds even out, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the uh, slidecast. It is located at the third intercostal space at the left sternal border. The tricuspid valve can be heard best at the fourth intercostal space at the left sternal border. And then the mitral valve can be heard best at the left intercostal, uh, sorry, the left fifth intercostal space, the midclavicular line. Um, the mitral valve, the PMI, and the apical pulse are all located at the same spot and have the same anatomical landmarks: the left fifth intercostal space, the uh, left midclavicular line. Again, as you auscultate the heart sounds, you want to auscultate for the heart valves in these four spaces, including Herb's point. And you can do this in a Z pattern across the chest, which is illustrated in your book. This is a, a slide that shows the location of each of the valves. You, you as uh, you remember, the tricuspid valve is located in between the right atrium and the right ventricle. The pulmonic is located between the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery. The mitral valve is located between the left atrium and the left uh, ventricle. And the aortic valve is located between the left ventricle and the aorta. Uh, your slide also indicates the flow of blood through the heart, which is something that you will definitely need to know for your uh, midterm examination. So again, they give you a mnemonic here, tissue paper my assets, which is a way to remember the location of the valves and um, the timing of the way the heart, uh, the blood flows through these valves, tricuspid, pulmonic, mitral, and aortic. This next slide shows a diagram of the uh, stethoscope. Remember that there's a diaphragm and a bell on most stethoscopes. Some of the fancier cardiac stethoscopes uh, do not have a bell on them. They've, uh, the, the, especially the Littmans, have incorporated the bell into the diaphragm, so there'll be just one side, um, so you don't have to switch sides in order to listen from the diaphragm to the bell. But most of the stethoscopes do have a diaphragm and a bell. The diaphragm is the flat side. It's, you can hear higher pitch sounds better such as the heart sounds um, and the, the lung sounds. However, you want to switch to the bell whenever you want to hear lower pitch sounds, such as murmurs and brewies. Uh, be sure that when you switch, you actually flip the head of your stethoscope. The stethoscope um, sound is turned on or off to either the diaphragm or the bell, depending on the location of the little metal flange that's inserted into the uh, head of the stethoscope. If you just turn the whole stethoscope over, you won't be able to hear uh, one or the other. So make sure that it's turned on to that side. So when you're auscultating for um, brewies and murmurs, you do need to flip to the bell. This next slide is also is another mnemonic that talks about the location of the uh, auscultation sites on the precordium. It's ape to man, 
and it shows you that aortic, pulmonic, tricuspid, and mitral shows the order and location of the uh, valves and the best places to listen for them. Okay. Uh, as you auscultate um, for the heart sounds, you want to again first use the diaphragm of the stethoscope. You want to identify S1 and S2. S1 and S2 correspond to the lub and the dub of the a of the apical pulse that you're used to listening for. S1 is the first sound, it's the lub. S2 is the second sound, the dub. It's lub dub, lub dub, lub dub, lub dub. S1 is the closure of the AV valves, meaning the valves in between the atrium and the ventricles, and it signals the beginning of systole in the cardiac cycle. S2 is the closing of the semilunar valves, which would be the tricuspid valve in the mitral, and it signals the beginning of diastole in the cardiac cycle. S1 can be heard loudest at the base of the heart, and S2 um, I'm sorry, S1 can be heard, heard loudest at the apex, S2 can be heard loudest at the base. The apex of the heart is, again, located at the bottom. The apex is where the apical pulse, the PMI, and the mitral valve are all, are all located. The S2, the base of the heart, is up at the top of the heart. Keep in mind that the apex and base anatomically are flipped in the heart and the lungs. The apex of the lungs is at the top of the lungs. The apex of the heart is at the bottom of the heart. The base of the lung is at the bottom of the lung. The base of the heart is at the top. The reason for this is because apex refers not necessarily to a position, but to a shape. Apex is a pointy shape, sort of like the apex of a mountain. When you talk about the apex of a mountain, you mean the very top of it. So the lungs, ha uh, the very top of the lungs have a pointier shape, and that's why they're called the apex. The um, bottom of the heart has a pointier shape, and that's why it's called the apex. So that's why they are opposite each other. That's an important point to remember, and there will be test questions that deal with that. This slide shows uh, anatomically what generates the lub and the dub sounds. Again, lub is S1. Dub is S2. Lub is the tricuspid and the mitral valves closing, which is the uh, uh, valves between the atrium and the ventricles. And then the S2 is the dub, which is the aortic and the pulmonic valves closing, also known as the semilunar valves. Lub is the beginning of, of systole in the cardiac cycle. Dub is the beginning of diastole in the cardiac cycle. As you're listening over these, uh, these five traditional uh, spots, you're going to be listening for two different types of heart sounds. One is, one is the extra heart sound, and the second are murmurs. We're going to talk about extra heart sounds now. There are three types of extra heart sounds that I would like for you to be aware of and to be uh, focusing your attention on trying to identify. The first is something called a split S2. A split S2 is exactly what it sounds like. It's an S2, which is the dub sound, that is two sounds instead of one sound. It happens as a normal phenomenon, usually at the end of inspiration, especially in younger individuals. And it has to do with the expansion of the lungs um, causing pressure on the heart, and it makes um, one valve close slightly after the other valve. Um, so instead of being lub-dub, 
lub dub, lub dub, you'd hear lub dub dub, lub dub dub, lub dub dub, lub dub dub. Um, so that second sound is two equal sounds instead of one long sound. The two sounds take up the same amount of time. Musically, if you mu if you read music, you can write these out as lub and dub being two quarter notes and a split S2 being lub being a quarter note and dub being two eighth notes that take up the same amount of time as a quarter note but are two sounds instead of one sound. And that is exactly what a split S2 looks like. An S3, which is also called a ventricular gallop, how, although I will refer to it as an S3, is a sound that sounds exactly like a lub and a dub, although it is in a, it ends, it starts in diastole, which is a place where it should not be, and it is usually a little softer than um, the S1 and the S2. Again, it indicates a delayed closing of a valve, and that can be as a result of uh, filling times being unequal, as a result of hypertrophy, or um, uh, uh, inflexibility of a, uh, of a heart chamber. It can also be due to diseases of the valve itself, something that might cause um, uh, constriction uh, uh, or um, fibrosis along uh, valves. The S3 happens early in diastole. And as you remember, diastole occurs, or at diastole starts um, at, the at the beginning of S2. So really what diastole is, is the space between S2 and the next S1. So when you are listening for the heart sounds, what you hear is lub-dub, slight pause, lub-dub, slight pause, lub-dub, slight pause, lub-dub, slight pause. That slight pause is diastole. It's the resting period between S2 and the next S1. Okay? So that is the diastolic phase of the heart. The systolic phase of the heart occurs between S1 and S2. So lub-dub, 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 the space between lub and dub is, is systolic phase of the heart. So the systolic phase of the heart starts with S1, and the diastolic phase of the heart starts with the ending of S2. Okay, so extra heart sounds are always heard in diastole. That is something you want to put a star next to in your notes. Extra heart sounds are always heard in diastole. If you hear a sound between lub and dub, it can't be an extra heart sound because they're always heard in diastole. And the space between S1 and S2 is systole. So make sure that you understand that concept. So S3, it's heard early in diastole, and it's a, usually a result of rapid filling of the ventricles. Uh, it is associated with... Um, congestive heart failure. Um, it's usually heard best at the apex of the heart using the bell of the stethoscope. Um, it doesn't come and go like an S2, a split S2 mind. Split S2 varies with the respiratory cycle and S3 does not. It is constant um, during the um, cardiac, uh, during the the cardiac cycle. It can come and go in the sense that once someone's exacerbation of their congestive heart failure has improved, 
the S3 may disappear, but it doesn't vary from heartbeat to heartbeat. Um, it, it does indicate a, a decreased ventricular compliance, especially in the left ventricle. Um, in children and young adults, it may be an innocent finding that disappears uh, when the patient uh, sits down. You may hear it when they're standing, but it may disappear when it sits down. Uh, it's usually the earliest sign of heart failure. It can also be heard in situations where there's an increased cardiac output, such as pregnancy or fluid overload, or in hyperthyroidism. An S3 coming early, early in diastole uh, sounds like lub-dub-dub, 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 lub-dub-dub. It's an extra sound that appears in diastole that shouldn't be there. Normal sound is lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. An S3 would sound like lub-dub-dub, 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 lub-dub-dub. So it's an, an extra sound early in diastole right after S2. You want to compare that to an S4, which is sometimes called an atrial gallop, although for our purposes we'll always call it an S4, which is another ventricular filling sound that occurs late in diastole, and it comes immediately before the next S1. It's heard when the atria are contracting, and again, it's another very soft sound, but it does sound like, an, like another heartbeat. Um, but it occurs late in diastole. It's heard best at the apex, um, and especially when the patient is laying in a left lateral position on their side with the bell of the stethoscope. Um, it's usually a signal of either fluid overload, hypertension, or aortic stenosis, and it can come and go, especially after exercise. It may be present in, normally in someone after vigorous exercising, especially if they're over 40, and it may disappear after the heart rate returns to normal after a, a period of exercising. Uh, an S4 sounds like this. Lub-dub, 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 lub-dub. An S4 comes so late in diastole that it almost fuses with the next S1. So it sort of sounds like it's a grace note on the beginning of S1. So again, if you read music, it would be lub and dub being quarter notes with a little grace note, a little 16th note grace note right there on the beginning of the S1. So again, the normal lub dub is lub dub, lub dub, lub dub. And S4 is lub dub, lub dub. Lub dub, lub dub. So it almost makes S2 sound like two different sounds or two different notes. Okay, so they almost fuse together. It gives you that sort of bifurcated sound. A um, little bit of review here. Looking at our next slide. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Our next slide is about uh, friction rubs. A friction rub occurs uh, when there is inflammation of the pericardial membranes. Uh, pericardial um, sac, as you remember is a, a, a sac that covers the uh, cardiac muscle and protects it and also lubricates the outside of the cardiac um, muscle. Um, when irritation sets in on either the cardiac surface or in the 
pericardial membranes, there can be a rubbing sound that is generated when the heart beats and it uh, pushes against the cardiac sac and that uh, movement of the cardiac sac, the pericardial sac, across the uh, cardiac muscle is not smooth like it should be. Um, it, it can occur in both systole and diastole. Um, it's, it's usually heard best at the apex. It's a common finding the first week after someone has experienced a myocardial infarction um, as a result of the inflammation on the cardiac muscle that comes with the uh, infarction process and the white blood cells that invade that area to try to um, uh, uh, salvage the cardiac muscle. It's also very common in pericarditis because pericarditis is a inflammation of the pericardial sac. Um, it, uh, a mild, in, in mild instances, uh, what's normally uh, what normally happens is the source of the inflammation is treated usually supportively. If it's an M, if it happens after an, an MI, the person um, they would monitor the the, um, the status of the friction rub and continue to uh, provide supportive care for the uh, body to you know recover from the effects of the myocardial infarction. If the myocardial infarction was the result of a of an embolus, there may be some TPA and so forth that's done that would improve this, the situation of the pericarditis. If it's an infectious process, they would, of course, treat the underlying infectious process. Um, one of the reasons that you're interested in recent dental work in your history is because uh, it has been a f uh, not unknown occurrence for um, teeth cleaning to introduce bacteria systemically into the uh, it into the um, person's um, uh, blood circulating blood volume that can result in either endo or pericarditis. So that is one of the reasons why you're interested in if they've had a recent tooth cleaning. Folks who are at high risk for this often are given antibiotics before their dental visits to prevent any uh, secondary infections as a result of you know cleaning that plaque off their teeth, which plaque is basically a buildup of bacteria on the teeth. So, um, again, this is normally a rubbing sound, and it can be a mild sound to a very loud sound. In severe instances, it sort of sounds like an old-fashioned washing machine going through a ringer cycle. Um, it's just a very loud mechanical sound. Okay. This next slide is a representation of where the, uh, these heart sounds show, these, uh, show up in the cardiac cycle. Uh, if you look at the middle of the slide, down uh, where it shows the S3 and S4, you can see that the, blo the black blocks representing S1 and S2. S1 and S2 are uh, represented here by those black lines, and you see that they are showing the lub-dub S1, S2, a slight pause in the middle, and then a second cardiac cycle picking back up again with another S1 and another S2. Across the top of the slide, you see that they have labeled the systolic phase and the diastolic phases. The systolic phase is in between S1 and S2. The diastolic phase is between S2 and S3. I'm sorry, S2 and the next S1. You'll note here um, that the heart kind of beats in waltz time. There is a, a pause after S2. So it goes lub-dub, pause, lub-dub, pause, lub-dub, pause. So kind of think of it like, you know, a waltz, la-da-da-da-da, lub-dub, lub-dub, 
So that third um, beat there is diastole, where uh, that is kind of a, a resting phase that's equal to the length of the S1 and uh, you know and S2. It's a it's a it's a rested phase there. That's diastole. Um, you can see where they have represented S3. That S3 is uh, indicated by a little blue um, bar. It's not quite as big as S1 and S2, showing you that it is a similar sound, but not quite as loud as S1 and S2. It's coming right after S2 in the diastolic phase of the heart. Um, so it's lub-dub-dub, lub-dub-dub, lub-dub-dub. And that is the, the graphic representation of how S3 falls within the cardiac cycle. The next line down shows S4. S4 is being represented by the little pink bar, which is again not quite as big as S1 and S2, showing you that it's a similar sound but not quite as loud, and it is falling before S1. Lub dub, lub dub, lub dub, lub dub. So it's coming late in diastole, right before the next S1, and it's so close that it's almost fusing with the S1. You notice that the pink bar is a little closer to S1 than the blue bar is to S2. So it comes a little closer to S1 than S3 comes to S2. Um, the, the bottom line shows what it would look like if there was both an S4 and an S3 present. Now that one's a little, uh, a little more complicated. It would go lub-dub-dub, lub-dub-dub. Lub dub dub. Um, that would be difficult to uh, ascertain in the very beginning. I don't expect you to be experts at noticing uh, extra heart sounds and murmurs at this point, but I do expect you to know where in the cardiac cycle they fall, what is causing them, and to note, you know, what is a normal sound, lub dub, lub dub, and if there's something not right there, whether it's an extra heart sound, a murmur, or a friction rub that you're hearing. Um, and even if you can't at that point place it in the cardiac cycle, um, you do know where these would fall so that if you keep practicing these skills um, and your technique is good, you will eventually be able to feel very confident in determining that this is an S3, an S4, a murmur, a split S3, or a friction rub. I'm sorry, split S2 or friction rub. When you come in for your practice sessions, I do have um, simulators that we can simulate a lot of these sounds on so that you can practice. There's also sounds on the CD that accompanies your textbook where you can practice these sounds. There are actually many more sounds on the CD that I am holding you responsible for. Don't worry about confusing yourself about learning all of the sounds that are on the CD. The ones that I want you to know are S3, S4, split S2, murmurs, and a friction rub. Those are the ones that I would like you to know. So the first three lines on this slide I'm showing you right now, you can disregard at this point. But please do look at the bottom three lines. Now that we've talked about extra heart sounds, let's talk about heart murmurs. Um, heart murmurs are maybe a little easier. To, to, to hear than extra heart sounds. They don't sound like S1 and S2. Um, matter of fact, they sound like breweries. And the reason they sound like breweries is because it's the exact same phenomenon that causes a brewery 
that causes the extra that, that causes a murmur. Matter of fact, a brewy inside the heart's called a murmur. A murmur outside the heart's called a brewy. It's the exact same phenomenon. Turbulent blood flow is what causes both sounds. It's just that when you hear it in the heart, we call it a murmur. When you hear it peripherally, it's called a brewy. Okay. So, when you're listening for a heart murmur, you want uh, you you want to listen for that blowing or swishing sound that is associated with the turbulent blood flow. Remember that turbulent blood flow is always abnormal in the vascular system. The vascular system is designed to have Teflon-like smoothness of all of its surfaces. The inside of the vessels, the inside of the heart structures are all supposed to be super smooth so that the blood just rushes right past it as it goes through the vascular system. Whenever you have turbulent blood flow, that indicates that there's something that's slowing down the flow of blood. It could be um, stenosis, it could be obstruction, it could be cholesterol plaques, it could be aneurysms. This slide here talks about some of the causes of heart murmurs and it gives you a mnemonic called SPAMS. Could be a stenosis of a valve, a partial obstruction, an aneurysm, mitral regurgitation, or a septal defect um, that's causing the murmur that you're hearing in the heart. Um, there's also different types of murmurs. Um, there's systolic murmurs and there are diastolic murmurs. And now that you know systole and diastole, you know that a systolic murmur occurs between S1 and S2. A diastolic murmur occurs after S2 and before the next S1. Also because you, we've already talked about systole and diastole, you know that it's going to be harder to hear a systolic murmur because the time period between S1 and S2 is much shorter than it is between S2 and the next S1. But know that there are systolic and diastolic murmurs. At this point, all I care about is that you know what the murmur sounds like and you can place it in either systole or diastole. I'm not so concerned that you know exactly what's causing it. Um, we c that can be determined by uh, an echocardiogram. Um, when you're feeling much, much more comfortable with your skills, then you can start working on you know, where the um, murmur of mitral regurgitation is best heard, um, where, sten where a aortic stenosis is best heard. But at this point, I, I am wanting you to focus on identifying that the sound is a murmur and where in the cardiac cycle it's falling. One thing that you should know about murmurs also is that a systolic murmur is, uh, in younger individuals, may be present as an innocent murmur, meaning that um, they have a murmur, but it is considered a non-pathological um, issue in a younger child and a young adult up until about the, the early 20s. Um, that's why some people will tell you, I had a heart murmur when I was young, but I outgrew it. Um, and that is because um, the heart function of a child and a young adult is actually so good that sometimes it pumps so much blood that you get an unexpected backwash of blood that causes that innocent systolic murmur. Um, 
as they get a little bit older and the heart function deteriorates a bit into their 20s, uh, it's still completely adequate, but um, it's not quite as uh, strenuous as it was as a, as a younger individual. That backwash that caused the murmur disappears and that murmur also disappears. So a systolic murmur between S1 and S2 may be an innocent finding in a child or a young adult. However, it should not persist past the early 20s. If you're hearing a systolic murmur in a 30-year-old, do not consider it an uh, innocent murmur. Just because it's an innocent murmur also doesn't mean you shouldn't document it. You should still document everything about that murmur. So murmurs, they're blowing or swishing sounds. They indicate abnormal turbulent blood flow. Again, a murmur outside the heart is called a brewy, and a brewy inside the heart is called a murmur. It's the same sound. They are either systolic or diastolic. Um, it is rare, but it is possible for you to hear um, a murmur that occurs in both phases, but that is rare. A systolic murmur, again, might be innocently heard in children and young adults. The timing, there th when you identify a murmur, there are um, elements of that murmur that you want to focus in on. One is the timing, which we've already talked about. Is it a systolic or a diastolic murmur? How loud is it? They're graded from grade one through grade six. Grade one is, is barely, barely uh, um, um, heard through the stethoscope. Grade six is you can hear that murmur with the stethoscope about two inches off the chest. So that would be an incredibly loud murmur. Um, but uh, usually about grade three, grade four is when they be start becoming uh, much easier to identify, especially grade four. Grade five is a very, very loud murmur, and grade six, again, you don't even have to have the stethoscope on the chest. One and two are a little harder to pick up. You want to note the pitch of the murmur. Is it a high-pitched murmur or a low-pitched murmur? Murmurs have patterns, and although I'm going to describe them for you here, I'm not as concerned that you know the pattern. Um, this is a more advanced skill that I hope that when you're more comfortable with identifying murmurs, you'll revisit this and try to identify patterns in murmurs. Um, but for right now, I just want you to be familiar with this. There's something called a crescendo pattern, um, and these are kind of musical terms. Uh, crescendo means that the murmur gets louder throughout the cycle. Decrescendo means that the, the murmur gets softer through the cycle. Plateau means that it uh, stays the same. Diamond shape, or also sometimes called crescendo-decrescendo, means that it gets louder and then softer, again, within the same cardiac cycle. Um, it also, again, can have different characteristics. It can be musical, blowing, harsh, or rumbling. And you may hear these terms used to describe a murmur when you read a history and physical from a cardiologist, um, you may hear these terms um, used. Become familiar with them, and, and if you read in a, in a history and physical that someone has a musical murmur, please listen to that patient yourself and try to identify that murmur and see if what you hear corresponds to what has been documented in the uh, in the in the physical. It doesn't always. Make sure that that. Um, you know, you can identify the same things that they can, and if you think that uh, they're off, make sure to, to uh, note that and to ask uh, the cardiologist when you see them. You want to note the location of the murmur. You want to use anatomical locations, and again, you can use the anatomical locations you learned um, 
for um, identifying the valve locations um, when you're identifying these uh, locations of murmurs. You want to note whether it radiates. In other words, if you hear it best at the, aor at the um, um, aortic valve area, does it radiate to other areas? Can you also hear it at the pulmonic uh, area, only softer? If so, you want to note that. You also want to note the posture the patient is in when you're hearing it. Sometimes when you're assessing for murmurs, um, it's sometimes uh, helpful to position the patient in a way that brings the heart a little closer to the chest wall. So you'd want to listen to them um, uh, in the beginning, either sitting up or laying down, whichever is more comfortable for the patient. If you feel that you want to bring the, the heart closer to the chest wall, you can ask them to turn on their left side and listen to the, them in the lateral position. Or if they're sitting, you can ask them to lean forward and you can listen to the heart um, in that position also. That will bring especially the um, mitral area closer to the chest wall for you to listen. This slide, again, is a graphic representation of murmurs and where they might fall and what they might look like within the cardiac cycle. Again, across the top, they've identified the systolic and the diastolic phases of the heart for you there. Along the, the side, we have our S1 and S2 bars where they're uh, indicating different types of murmurs. On the first um, slide where they've indicated an early murmur, this is what they would call a decrescendo murmur. It starts loud and it's represented by the squiggly spiral shape that they've drawn in between S1 and S2. You note that the spiral shape is wide in the beginning and it narrows down toward the middle of the systolic phase. That is a, a decrescendo a systolic murmur. Starts loud and gets softer. So it would sound something like um, Lub dub, lub dub, lub dub. Okay, that's a systolic murmur. Um, the next, the next line um, shows you what they're calling a mid-systolic murmur. Sometimes you call them a, a pan-systolic murmur um, or a holosystolic murmur, meaning that you can hear the sound throughout the entire systolic phase. Again, I'm not so concerned that you can identify whether it's an early or a pan-systolic um, or a late systolic as that you actually recognize it as a murmur and can tell me which um, cardiac cycle it falls into. So you see that the middle line there, the mid, is showing you a that's a crescendo-decrescendo murmur where it starts soft, gets loud, and then gets soft again, also known as a diamond-shaped. The next line shows you a late crescendo murmur where it starts in the middle of the systolic um, cycle and uh, softly and then becomes loud. And then the last line is showing you a the holo or the pan systolic murmur as a plateau where it starts at the same volume and maintains that same volume throughout the entire cardiac cycle. So there's no increase or decrease in the um, uh, loudness of the sound. Now, I don't have a slide like this to show you diastolic murmurs, but I think that you've seen them enough now to that you can um, uh, imagine in your mind, at this point, take one of those diamond shapes and stick it after S2 and before the next S1, and you've got a diastolic murmur. So a diastolic murmur would sound like lub dub swish, lub dub swish, lub dub swish, lub dub swish. Okay, that's gonna that's a little easier to hear than the lub swish dub, lub swish dub, lub swish dub. Okay. The space in between S2 and the next S1 is larger than the space between S1 and S2. 
and as the heart rate increases, that space gets even smaller. So it's harder to hear a systolic murmur in someone who has a uh, apical rate of 120 versus somebody who has an apical rate of 60. That space gets much smaller as the heart rate increases. So that does make it a little bit of a challenge. Um, but I know that we're all up to it. So again, when you come into the lab, we can simulate these sounds. You can also listen to them on your um, CD that accompanies your book. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I chose that book, because the quality of the CD that accompanies it is very good. There's also little um, video clips on there that you can watch that correspond with the streaming videos that we have for the chorus. Some age-specific considerations in the cardiovascular system. Uh, in infants, you want to be sure to use, again, the appropriate size stethoscope, just like we did for the thorax assessment in the infants. You want a neonate size, especially in, in infants under probably two years old, because um, if you use an adult size stethoscope, you will end up um, listening over more than one area. Your adult size stethoscope can listen to both the aortic and the pulmonic area on an infant, so you want a neonate sized uh, uh, stethoscope. Their heart rates may be normally irregular because of their respiratory th rates, especially in uh, uh, newborn infants and especially during nursing. Their respiratory rate will be uh, irregular based on their nursing patterns, and that can in, uh, influence the cardiac rate. Um, and again, that uh, sinus arrhythmia is a is a pattern that causes some slight irregularity in the in the rhythm, um, very slight irregularity that is actually common up through the late teens uh, in children. And again, uh, those innocent systolic murmurs may be present, but they're also a, uh, may be congenital uh, fetal circulation um, problems that are causing murmurs. So we need to to um, assess the um, assess them for murmurs very, very carefully. Remember that there are um, foraminal valleys and uh, adductus arteriosus that uh, in the fetal circulation that are supposed to close. The foraminal valley is supposed to close shortly after birth and the ductus arteriosus is supposed to be closed at birth. However, they're not always uh, closed and sometimes um, they take a, a few weeks after or they need to be surgically closed. That's the old, you know, my baby was born with a hole in its heart. When they say my baby was born with a hole in its heart, they mean either a foraminal valley or a ductus arteriosus. Foraminal valley is the opening between the atrium and the ductus arteriosus is between the uh, pulmonary artery and the pulmonary vein. So either one of those being open could of course um, co-mingle oxygenated and unoxygenated blood, which of course is not something we want in, um, uh, I in a newborn or in anyone. Um, there's also, you know, some uh, congenital um, abnormalities such as tetralogy, tetralogy of Fallot um, and some other um, dis uh, misplacement of the great vessels and so forth that can um, severely impact their uh, cardiac output and their um, ability to oxygenate their own blood to provide their periphery with oxygenated blood, um, which are rare but uh, are devastating when they occur and, and of course need to be picked up on that first assessment of the uh, neonate right after uh, delivery. 
uh, if you work in if you work in a specialty area where you will be encountering uh, infants and young children, you should spend extra time uh, reviewing those in the book. They they cover them quite well, uh, dealing with those uh, congenital abnormalities, which can be um, uh, severe um, and uh, and fatal if they're not picked up immediately uh, after birth. Um, again, children may have visible um, apical pulses and, and may have those visible PMIs uh, at the fifth intercostal space, left milliculicular line, um, and that is related to their thinner chest wall. And again, they may have those innocent murmurs. In pregnancy, there's often an increased pulse rate. There may be an exaggerated S2 splitting. There's often an S3 because of the increased fluid. Uh, their cardiac um, output has to increase, and their circulating blood volume increases by at least 30 to 40 percent during pregnancy, especially in the later stages. So their heart is a little overworked there at the end. Um, it's not unheard of for pregnant women to experience some CHF-like symptoms, so you do need to be aware of those, and that's why that S3 may be heard during pregnancy. They may develop a systolic murmur also as a result. These should disappear after delivery, but the pregnant uh, woman postpartum needs to be assessed um, for the um, presence of the splitting S2, the present S3, and the systolic murmur, which should disappear. Uh, if they don't, then we may have a cardiac issue um, that we need to deal with in the postpartum uh, phase. And also, in elderly folks, um, you may hear an S4 in an elderly person, even without a history of coronary artery disease. Um, their irregular pulses are much more common in elderly individuals, and they need to be investigated to determine their cause. Um, peripheral pulses also in an uh, elderly person are likely to be diminished. Most of most nurses, uh, it's been my experience, think that a two-plus pulse is normal because we're so excited to get two-plus pulses in our uh, elderly people's uh, pedal pulses. Um, but remember that um, three-plus is actually a normal pedal pulse. Um, and also, remember to review your peripheral pulses, where they're located. You will be asked for the landmarks, especially for the, for the pedal pulses. Remember that there are two pedal pulses, not just... Um, one on the top of the foot. There's another uh, located back around by the in the uh, medial um, ankle. You want to know the names and the um, uh, landmarks for how to locate those peripheral pulses. Okay. Our practice exam question for uh, this lecture deals with a seven-year-old who, upon admission to the pediatric unit, has a soft systolic murmur. His mother states that he's always had this murmur and the doctor's aware of it. How should you document your findings? A, there's no need to document it because it's an innocent murmur. B, you want to describe the murmur's location, pitch, loudness in the nurse's notes, but there's no need to mention it to the physician. C, you want to document your finding in the nurse's notes and mention your findings to the doctor. Or D, you want to document your findings on the graphic sheet. And the correct answer here is C. Uh, and heart murmur is always an abnormal finding, and you want to document it even if you're suspecting that it's an innocent murmur, uh, innocent systolic murmur of childhood. Even though it may be determined to be an innocent systolic murmur, it needs to be treated as though it is an abnormal finding, uh, assessed fully and documented fully and reported fully. Next part of this lecture deals with the peripheral vascular system and the lymphatics. 
Um, as way of review, you all know that arteries carry the oxygenated blood um, to the tissues and veins carry deoxygenated blood back to the uh, heart. The um, arteries are thick-walled muscular vessels. The veins are thin-walled uh, with uh, very little musculature, although there are valves in the veins. Lymphatics are a separate, vascular, separate vessel system that retrieves excess fluid and plasma proteins from the interstitial tissues and returns them to the bloodstream. It's a ma major player in the immune system by providing a channel by which white, uh, white blood cells can rapidly attack a, 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 an immune um, a system um, emergency or issue. Um, and it does contain the lymph nodes that drain various areas of the body. Uh, when you're assessing the periphery, you want to start with the arms. Again, you want to note the color of the skin, uh, nails, the temperature, the texture, the turgor, the hair distribution that we've talked about in previous exams. You want to note any lesions, any edema, or any clubbing in the fingernails. Uh, and you want to note the capillary refill. Again, the capillary refill should be greater or should be less than uh, two seconds. You should be able to push on that nail bed. The pink, uh, you should be able to push all the blood out of the nail bed, which would blanch it, take your finger off, and the pink uh, should return, which is the blood returning to the vessels there in the nail bed. Um, you want to assess the radial and the antecubital pulses, and again, you're assessing these from 0 to 4 plus. 0 is absent, 1 plus is barely there, 2 plus is little, you know, slightly, uh, um, slightly less than normal, 3 is normal, 4 is bounding. Um, you want to palpate the antecubital and the uh, axillary lymph nodes, and uh, all findings that you find in the arm should be bilateral. If you get a 2-plus um, radial pulse the on the left, you should get a 2-plus radial pulse on the right. If they're different, then that's going to indicate an issue with the uh, circulation uh, in that one arm, the arterial circulation. Um, you want to note any uh, you know, the temperature changes, especially when you get difference in, uh, radi er, in arterial pulses, to determine whether or not there is an arterial blockage, aneurysm, or other issue that is compromising the arterial blood flow to that area of the peripheral uh, portion of the body. If there is um, edema differences uh, and temperature differences, in uh, upper extremities. Again, you want to note for uh, any uh, DVTs, signs of any DVTs um, that might be present. If they've had a history of a uh, mastectomy, again, uh, you want to note for any lymphedema in those upper extremities. Uh, and if they do have lymphedema, you want to take immediate action to protect those tissues. Uh, edema, especially lymphedema, puts the skin and underlying tissues at risk for um, injuries that the body has trouble addressing because the lymph is not um, flowing in the extremity like it normally would be. Uh, you want to again note all pulses 0 to 4 plus, 3 plus being normal. You want to note the rate, amplitude, and the rhythm of all pulses. Um, I give you on this slide an example of how pulses should be documented in your history and physical write-ups. You should make a little grid that uh, shows the pulses left and right, and then all of the um, um, pulses, the types of pulses across the top. So I've listed the radial, the, car the carotid, the brachial, the apical, the femoral, the popliteal, the posterior popliteal, and the dorsal pedalis. You could also add on the temporal um, pulse, which I didn't, I didn't place in here, um, but you could also add that to this list. 
um, and the anacubital side uh, no I did add the brachial excuse me so those are those are uh, in that list and you see that I have listed them all right and left uh, and graded them from zero to uh, four plus the NA I have listed under the apical because this particular person didn't have a PMI um, and I wasn't able to feel the apical pulse which on a normal sized adult is not an abnormal finding when you assess the legs then, you want to inspect the skin, just like we did the upper extremities for the hair distribution, venous patterns, um, sizes, uh, edema. You want to note the temperature of the skin, the turgor, the texture. Um, it sh again, should be symmetrical. You want to note the venous pattern in the legs. Uh, the legs do tend to have a more pronounced venous pattern. Uh, you may find more varicose veins, spider veins, uh, venous stars, and so forth that we talked about uh, in the uh, skin, hair, and nails assessment on the lower extremities versus the upper extremities. Um, if you do find varicosities, you want to note the locations, the sizes. You want to note if there is a pain, uh, discomfort, if there's any lack of mobility to the joint as a result of them. Some some uh, varicosities can be extremely um, severe and can really limit function uh, due to either pain or to the range of motion of the of the um, extremity. You want to look for any angiomas, any petechiae, purpuras, any bruising, uh, any other kind of abnormalities that you might see, especially from side to side. Again, so findings should be abnormal. The only caveat to that is that, of course, if you find a, a a venous star on, on one leg, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the other leg uh, in exactly the same position, um, you know, but there may be venous stars on, on both sides, not necessarily in the exact same position. You want to assess the, in, uh, the lymph nodes in the lower extremities. You want to palpate the inguinal lymph nodes. You also want to palpate the peripheral pedal pulses um, and use a Doppler if you're unable to find these. You want to palpate the femoral pulse, the popliteal pulse, the posterior tibial pulse, which is located medially uh, behind the, the medial malleolus of the ankle. When we say posterior tibial, sometimes that uh, confuses students and they think that it's on the back of the leg, kind of where the Achilles tendon is located. When they say posterior, they mean posterior to the medial malleolus, which is the, the ankle, you know, part of the ankle bone. And then the dorsalis pedis, which is that pedal pulse that's located on the top of the foot. It's lateral to the extensor tendon and the great toe. And again, you use a light touch here or else it's easy to obliterate those. Again, remember that three plus is normal, although we are used to getting two plus on our elderly folks and um, finding that to, to be a better than uh, better than one one plus finding for elderly uh, individuals, um, but again, it should be bilateral. You also want to check edema. Uh, when you're assessing edema in the, especially in the legs, or in any dependent area, if the person is not, uh, if they're bedbound, they're uh, and they are holding uh, interstitial fluids, the edema may not show up in the. Uh, ankles or the lower extremities because gravity isn't working on those lower extremities like they would for someone who is able to sit or stand. You may see the edema in the sacral area or even in the back or in the uh, upper arms because that is the area lowest 
to the ground if someone is bedbound, and that may be the dependent. When they say dependent areas of the body, they mean areas that are lower than the level of the heart. And in that instance, that may be the dependent area of the body. So you want to assess those areas um, for edema. You want to press uh, in with your, usually your thumb, to see if you leave an indentation. Sometimes it's difficult in larger people to determine whether their legs are large as the result of uh, edema or adipose tissue. Um, if you're able to leave an indentation, it's almost always edema. So when you find edema in the ankle area, you want to march your finger up that, that uh, tibial bone, up the shin bone, pressing as you go until you find the highest level that the edema is located at. And then you want to describe that. It's much different to say that somebody has two plus edemas, edema of the ankles than to say they have two plus edema of the lower leg to, um, um, to the patella. That's a much different finding. If you've, they've got two plus edema all the way up to the patella, that is a much larger amount of interstitial fluid there compartmentalizing down there in the, in the lower legs um, and indicates a, a more severe uh, um, fluid uh, issue than just you know two plus in the ankles would. So you want to always indicate the level, the highest level that you're seeing uh, edema, especially pitting edema. If they have unilateral edema, it can indicate that they have um, a DVT. There may be an obstruction in the lymph system in that, s in that uh, extremity, or there may be uh, injury to that uh, level, or it might be as a result of independent positioning. For example, if somebody is sitting with one leg resting on the bed and one leg resting off the bed on the floor, the leg that's on the bed may not have edema, the leg that's on the floor may have edema in the ankle as a result of dependent positioning. But normally your findings should be symmetrical. And then finally our practice exam question uh, for the peripheral vascular system. My patient has a history of a mastectomy on the right side. You note her right arm is twice the size of her left. What nursing interventions would you use to decrease the size of this arm? A, would you elevate the arm on a pillow? B, would you encourage range of motion exercises? D, would you discourage constricting clothing? Or D, would you use all of the above? And the correct answer is D. You would use all of the above. The patient is probably experiencing lymphedema in that arm as a result of her mastectomy, and all the interventions that are listed would be appropriate. There are many more interventions that would also be appropriate, such as uh, you know, especially uh, constriction uh, gloves and sleeves that are usually made by OT um, that can help. It's li sort of like a uh, um, uh, Ted's hose, but, but for the arms that can help with the uh, edema, the lymphedema in those arms uh, and other um, exercises and things that can be done to help with lymphedema issues. So this is the end of our slidecast and podcast for the cardiovascular system. If you have any questions about any of the content, please contact me. You can also subscribe to the podcast version by going to the bottom of our podcast page and clicking on the subscribe in iTunes or subscribe in Yahoo Music or whichever aggregator you use so that you can have this, these appear in your iTunes library and you can either use them on an MP3 player, download them 
or you can burn them on a CD or you can just listen to them on, the, on your computer using iTunes, which again is a free program. So again, if there's any questions, please uh, don't, don't hesitate to contact me.